Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Have you wanted to grow your own easy, tasty and organic veg, but been worried that you don't have the time or even know where to start? Hello, I'm Miranda. Welcome to this episode. Today I'm chatting to Frances Tophill, one of the much-loved BBC Gardeners World presenters. Frances started growing veg on allotments a few years ago and enjoys growing in a way that's low-maintenance, beneficial to the environment and supports wildlife. She grows hard-working plants that are delicious, useful and attractive. Today she shares her stress-free secrets to achieving all this with us. I started by asking her about her latest allotment in Devon. So I, I was in Kent for three years. Um, it was only going to be a temporary thing whilst I reassessed and ended up staying in Kent for three years. And I had a plot for that time, which was so lucky, especially being the pandemic and everything that happened to have that space was amazing. But then um, I got a job doing some reforesting down on Dartmoor. So I moved back to Devon um, and I've got that plot, which I've been waiting for for years and years. It finally came through. So I have now had that plot and I've been working on it for, for this year, which is much, much smaller than the one I had in Kent. And I have to say much, much kind of more hospitable, shall we say. The one in Kent was a, a marsh and it was windy all the time. It's really next to the sea, so it was constant battering from the elements, really, really dry soil that would drain so quickly. And it was really challenging to grow anything, and apart from horsetail, which grew absolutely everywhere, as <laughs> everyone on Gardener's World who, who watched it would kind of send me messages and go, how do I get rid of it? And I found the answer is you kind of can't. Um, so that was a, it was a tough site and it was a huge site um, and it was a really overwhelming 
challenge, which I think a lot of people have related to because taking on a new allotment is really hard work. So actually, I'm really glad to have my new plot, which is, I think, a quarter of the size of the old one, maybe even smaller. Um, So manageable. It's interesting you say that because I think for a lot of us, we're not trying to be fully self-sufficient, are we? It's not something we have the time to be or the inclination. And so do you think it's something important when you are looking at an allotment or starting a veg space that the size is something you can manage within your time? Yeah, I think there are a couple of really important things with that. The first is take on what you know you can manage. Um, And the second is not to beat yourself up too much because, as I said, I was on my one in Kent for three years. And in the third year, I finally began to feel I was beginning to get to where I wanted to be. It took me three years and one of them was a a year when I wasn't really working at all so I could be there as much as I wanted within restrictions set by the government which is a bizarre thing to to think of now um but yeah so I could be there as much as I as I needed to be there uh and and that was the minimum I think you needed before you can feel that you're getting on top of things I think people take on a plot especially when they have neighbours around them who have been there for years and everything looks great and clear um and often when you take on a new plot it's not you know, it's full of junk often, you know, old carpets and things that people have accumulated that they thought they might use, but then they didn't use. Everything's covered in bramble, you know, that it can be a huge task just to clear it, let alone to start being productive. So, you know, don't put yourself under any pressure to do that. And as hard as it is to not feel that your allotment neighbours are looking at you and going, "Mm, they haven't weeded. I'm sure they're not because they'll all remember how daunting it was when they first started as well. And if you are worried, just speak to them and explain to them that you haven't got the time to get it, but but you're planning it and you're doing it and you're slowly working through it and they'll be really understanding. I think it's really interesting. I know when we talk about garden design, we say a year. What's your garden for a year before you make any changes? Having been on site where you are for a year now, has it been interesting to see the four seasons? Yeah, completely different from um, obviously the position I was in in Kent. So where I am in in Devon, it's a tiny little plot. Um, It's quite shady, which is completely different from Kent where I got absolutely no shade. Um, It's also silty, very near a river. So the soil's nice and rich, but obviously there's a big difference. So loads of my plants I transported with me. (laughs) I had a moving van full of more plants than anything else when I went down to Devon. Um, And lots of the things that did really well in Kent obviously don't do so well in Devon. So it's, it's that thing of getting to know the new site, but, um, you know, luckily there's no crazy weeds. I, I washed all of my plants thoroughly with water, um, to get any horsetail remnants off the roots before transplanting them, um, in, in the new plot. Uh, and they're the only weed that I really have badly on that plot now is raspberry, which I'm fine with. It's okay. (laughs) That weed tastes good exactly although having said that you know the more and more I've got into weeds having had the plot in Kent um I it got overrun with weeds and I kind of got to be quite at peace with them and I've got more and more into weeds because of that experience and you know so many of our weeds are are really are wildflowers um with massive history a massive history of medicinal uses and uses as food that we kind of have forgotten about so things like chickweed is a really classic example um fat hen is really closely related to quinoa you know that so there's loads of stuff that you can eat which is a weed so actually you know i think beating yourself up too much about weeds 
is something that gardeners and allotment keepers have done for years and years. And there is a slight movement to be a little bit more laissez-faire about what you have growing and be more accepting and see the value in wildflowers um, for what they can bring for the wildlife as well as for you and and even start cropping with them and, and using them. Nettles is a great example. Fantastic for loads of different wildlife. Delicious um, and really good medicinal use as well. So kind of looking at weeds differently can really help you out as a gardener. <laughs> how, how do you eat your nettles? Um, they have kind of two seasons of of edibleness. The first is in the spring. So usually before May time, um, when the new leaves are nice and soft, then you can pick them. And I use them in soup. Nettle soup is really good, but you can also add it to things like um, uh, garlic, wild garlic pesto. Uh, with a bit of nettle in. It's really high in iron, so it's really, really healthy. Um, and I just think it's delicious. But then it has another season in about September when it puts on another kind of flush of new growth. Um, and at the same time, you'll also have some seeds forming and the seeds are really good and nutritious and edible as well. And then, of course, add to that as an allotmenter um, that you can use it as a fertiliser, which is great. I had all my water butts just filled with nettles on my allotment. So... Um, it just adds, you know, a little bit of more interest as well. If you don't want to keep them, dig them up and stick them in a water butt, make some plant food. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of adding it to the water butt directly. Mm. A bit like a teapot then. Well, I think it helps because my water butt is broken. Okay, <laughs> so okay. The tap doesn't work. So I just have to sort of um, tape it all up. They can, the taps can get clogged up if you do it like that. But it's also just, just a nice way of doing it. And then you can just dunk your watering can into the water and it's there as a ready-made sort of nettle nettle tea really um it's also a little bit less intense than if you make it in a small bucket so in a big water butt then it's more diluted already so you don't have to dilute it as much as when you're watering um with a more intense version of comfrey or or nettle tea but no bones about it plants we identify as weeds are very successful so i think this is something the difference between growing in your own garden and growing in an allotment how do you grow Mm -hmm. if you want to be growing weeds on an allotment without upsetting your neighboring plots I think communication is really the key to that. Uh, last year, I was growing some ragwort, which uh, my neighbours weren't too keen about. Um, I think it's a, a really vilified plant, which actually doesn't really deserve its reputation unless you're growing it in a in a hay meadow, in which case you should remove all of it um, if it's going to feed any livestock. But... Um, it's poisonous to horses, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, poisonous to horses. But they tend to, in a field, avoid it naturally. But if you're going to harvest that grass and chop it up as hay when it's in the form of mixed in with hay a horse won't recognize it so it can be really dangerous um but in a normal garden setting where nothing is going to go to livestock it's really a, a useful plant um a really beautiful plant and a, an allotment neighbor came up to me and said um you need to get rid of that and i just pointed out to him that if you look closely it was absolutely covered in cinnabar moth caterpillars it's the only food that cinnabar moths can actually eat um and yeah the beautiful moss they're red and black really really stunning um and it was yeah completely covered it had about probably a hundred on there and I pointed it out to my neighbor and then the next time I came back to the plot he was there with another group of old men <laughs> there were mostly retired men on that plot um and he was showing them everyone else my moths on on the ragwort so he was completely converted just in that one moment and was spreading the word to everyone else. Um, if you have things particularly that are sort of propagated by wind, um, 
seeds. Obviously, there's the old saying, one year of seeds, seven year of weeds. Um, cut off the flowers before they go to seed. I think that's a really just a courteous thing to do um, for your neighbours. Um, but if they're not particularly going to propagate themselves by seed, then I think it's okay to have them. Just make sure that you check with your immediate neighbours that they're okay with with the fact that they're there, explain to them why they're there and that you're not just neglecting things, but you're making a conscious choice to let a few wildflowers grow. Um, and if they have a real objection, then you have to find a compromise. You've given us some tips on how, and I'm going to keep interchanging veg patch and allotment because I think there's a lot of similarities. The difference being that one is a communal space, isn't it really? Yeah. But um, how yeah, do you stop it completely. being daunting, taking on a large space? You've given us some tips about communication. Do you get other people involved? How can you start a plot without thinking, oh my goodness, I can't do this? It is a good question. Um, I think when I took on my big plot, I and in fact with my little plot as well, and I, I'm not a designer by any means. I am, a, I am just a gardener. Um, but I always make a plan. I, there's something really exciting to me about making something look really good. I, I have, you know, my training was in ornamental horticulture um, and then botany. And much as I love the look of plants, I feel, and it's, it goes with every element of my life, that there's something has to be useful in order for me to really get on board with it. So, you know, a botanical garden where I trained is completely inherently useful because it's conserving the world's species of plant you know and researching them and educating people about them but just an ornamental garden that's filled with ornamentals that really have no other purpose um leave me a little bit cold really so for me I have long had the idea that you don't have to have something that's purely functional or purely beautiful but a combination of the two is what it's all about. You know, you make something that looks great, but that every single plant in there has a function, whether it's medicinal or as a dye or as a crop or just for the wildlife, you know, that that's a function in itself. Or if you're propagating and conserving something that's rare and you need to sort of try and reintroduce it in the wild or you're helping with that sort of heritage seed saving or something like that, you know, there are loads of different uses, but I like to make it look good. I think if you have a blank space or even a space that's full of things, um, putting it down on paper, measuring it out, and drawing a plan of what you want it to eventually look like is really key just to go, right, okay, that's what I'm aiming for, and then just do it bit by bit by bit. And I think with allotments particularly, you will find there's usually lots of weed. So you'll clear one bit and then you'll go back and you'll find you have to clear the same bit again. But each time you clear it, you'll be getting rid of more and more weeds. Um, you can go with the method of just laying down cardboard and then soil and compost and manure if you want to save yourself some weeding and lay beds out like that. I find personally, I'm not organised enough <laughs> to get all of those things together at the same time. Um, so I tend to just clear it and then mulch over the top of the, of the ground instead. Um, but yeah, just do it bit by bit. Don't don't try and get everything done in the first year. You, you never will. And if you try, you'll feel that you failed. And I think with growing anything, if you feel that you failed, you're not going to try it again. Or you get that myth of people saying, I'm just not green fingered, which is, you know, not true. Plants want to grow. All you need to do is provide them with a space and, you know, a little bit of water and a little bit of care and choose the right place for them. Um, but 
when things fail is because you've taken on too much and you know you're setting yourself up for that failure which is just really unfair on you really and it's easy to do I think with the enthusiasm of starting Mm. something but I think as you say not beating yourself up and you keep trying don't you that's the joy yeah I mean also acknowledging that it is stressful my little sister's just got her first allotment plot um in Coventry and she was saying to me the other day that she thinks she's going to get rid of it because she hasn't got the time and she's really overwhelmed and she's really stressed and she feels bad And I get that because I had that as well. You know, if you're away for a week or something and you're thinking, oh no, the rain hasn't come, everything's going to be dead or, you know, it's got so hot, I haven't been there for weeks and weeks, there'll be loads of weeds growing. You know, it is so easy to to feel bad all the time. Um, So I do totally get that, but just try and keep things in perspective. You know, Um, not everyone has the time to go there every single day and I think more and more younger people are getting allotments because we don't have gardens of our own um and younger people are often busy (laughs) we don't have the time to go and tend to it every day like a lot of the kind of traditional retired community that people think of when they think of allotments um so if you feel that you really can't give it enough time, then think about sharing it with somebody. Get another friend because the waiting lists are so long. And sometimes you get a big plot, you know, divide it up and give half of it to a friend and keep half of it for yourself if you don't feel you have the time to keep on top of it on your own. So it's just all about that. It's, it's about it's really more in your head than it is about gardening. Just keeping things in perspective, not feeling too bad, not beating yourself up and taking it bit by bit. I think sharing the load is... Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned rain because I think nothing makes me enjoy rain as much as being a gardener. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) No, well, not at all. I've always loved the rain, actually. I love it. It's like going for a walk in the rain is just the best feeling. I always get really annoyed if I like darn all of my waterproof gear and then step outside and then the sun comes out. (laughs) And then, you know, my rainy walk is cancelled and I have a sunny one instead. But, um, but yeah, no, if you're growing vegetables particularly, oh, they need so much water. And if if you have rain, it's just amazing. But I've got more into growing perennial veg for that reason, because they're way more resilient to unpredictable weather. And weather is incredibly unpredictable in recent years. So um, things like perennial kales are really great. They propagate so easily. You just chop them off stick the top bit in the ground and it will root right there um perennial leeks i've got i've got some really cool stuff like um some yakons and some mashua which is just an i think more beautiful version of um nasturtium there's so much cool stuff out there and lots of it's really old sort of medieval veg that we've forgotten about because we've got so used to just buying annual stuff every year that's just whatever's in the supermarket but um, that is a really good way of, and I've got, in fact, more, it's only a small plot, like I said, that I have in Devon. But this year I started off thinking it would be mostly annuals and more and more of it has now become perennial. And I have one tiny bed now left for annuals. So, it, you know, and the perennial bits are so successful and the annuals had to really fight for them. You know, the slugs kept eating them or the rain didn't come or they'd bolt. Uh, whereas the perennials just are really great and I'm still harvesting from them now and where are we November so yeah I think that's a really interesting hack the annuals tomatoes there are things I think obviously we're not going to give up yeah but with the perennials would you say it depends on where you live in the country I mean are you leaving things in the soil are you taking things out but then obviously you're not starting from seed you're starting from a tuber or a root is it fair to say you've got to kind of 
work out what you can get away with leaving in as you would a perennial shrub in your plot? I think you have to be careful with what you choose. Um, if you live in somewhere really cold, um, then there might be a little bit. For example, I have some ginger, which I'm just going to try leaving outside in the ground and some licorice as well, um, which is more of an interesting than actually being edible anyway. Licorice water. I remember trying that as a kid. <laughs> it was pretty horrible. Um, so there is an element of that. But there is also the flip side where a lot of these perennial veg are root vegetables. So you need to dig them up in order to actually harvest from them. So if you live somewhere really cold, you just dig them up in the autumn, take the, some of them off, divide them up, eat some and pot some others up, put them inside or in a shed even because they won't be growing at all. They just need to have the frost kept off them and then plant them out again in the spring. Um, so really, I think it's for everybody. Uh, you just choose species that you want to eat um, and you garden according to your climate. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the parallel that comes to mind for me are dahlias. So if you can leave yes. your dahlias in the ground with mulch on top, you'll probably get away with some other things, will you? Completely. Because Com a lot of these, especially the root vegetables, come from similar areas, Central America, South America. Um, so if you can get away with dahlias in the ground, then you can get away with these in the ground, but then you can't harvest them. So it's a kind of a 50-50. Um, the mashua... Uh, I've been told by a grower in Devon who I tried to get hold of it everywhere this spring online and it all seemed to be out of stock. And then I went to this tiny little nursery in Devon and he had loads of it. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. So I bought some and he said that he keeps them outside down there. But obviously that's the southwest, so it's warm. Um, and he said he plants them really, really deeply and then they grow up and they form tubers at the surface. In the autumn, he then takes the top tubers. He's a nurseryman, so he propagates them, pots them up, and then sells them the following year. But he says he leaves the bottom ones, the deep ones, down in the soil and mulches over them, and they stay there, and they grow back every year from that. So he's getting a harvest and keeping them in the ground rather than having to dig the whole thing up. Um, so it just depends what, what you're able to do. And if you wanted to try that method, then I'm sure unless you're somewhere really up north where you get a proper ground frost. Um, if you're, you know, in the Midlands or even in the north of England, I'm sure you could cover it with um, a cloche or something like that, and that would just keep the frost off. And that's for yakon and what other sorts of crops? Well, that was for Mashua that he was doing that. I haven't... Tr this is my second year of, of the yakon. Last year I kept it in a pot... So I brought it in just to be on the safe side and I did propagate it and it did really well. Um, I'm not going to take a harvest from it this year. I'm going to let it bulk up, but I'm trying that same method with the yakon as with the mashua. What I might do is take a couple of tubers out and put them in pots just as backups in case it doesn't overwinter. Um, I was going to say, that's the natural answer, yeah. isn't it? Do some and leave exactly. some and see what you get yeah, away with. Completely. Um, and they're beautiful plants. Like I was saying before, you know, it's not a compromise if you grow something productive that you have to compromise on on the look of things, they, they're really attractive, stunning foliage plants. So perennial vegetables are going to save us time and save us labour, help us out. Mm -hmm. And in winter, what sort of tasks are you doing on your allotment? What's keeping you busy? Um, at the moment, clearing. I'm, I'm, tr I'm really trying every year to do more and more where I just leave everything for the winter. <laughs> but it's difficult, isn't it? As a gardener, you have this inbuilt thing to just want to tidy. Um, so I'm, I am clearing certain bits, especially actually with the perennial veg. A lot of weeds have, have been in there and I haven't gone in there 
um, for fear of sort of destroying crops. But now that everything's going to sleep for the winter, I want to get in and really give it a good weed in amongst everything so that it has a good start next year. Um, weeding, clearing, planning for next year, buying lots of seeds, I've got my onions out, things like that. So planting, you know, autumn crops, broad beans, onions are the classics. Um, and then, yeah, getting things ready and and, and planning for how I'm going to approach things next year. Also dividing lots of things. Um, I have a friend who runs a wall garden who um, I'm I'm sort of, she's going to let me use some of her space because I've run out of room on my allotment. <laughs> so she's going to clear an area for me. Um, and in exchange, I'm going to divide lots of things for her to use in her market garden. So that's that's the idea is sort of propagation, really. Absolutely. And anything exciting planned for next year or next spring? Any new veg or new methods you want to try? Um, no, I think I'm going to consolidate this year with what I've had last year. If, oh. if something amazing comes up, then obviously I'm going to be very tempted to buy it. Um, hoping for better luck with tomatoes next year than I had this year. I think everyone really struggled with the cold, long spring and then the not great summer and then the blight that came in everywhere. Um, so I'm just, yeah, getting my tomato cultivars at the ready I found I don't know if, if you found the same thing but I found that this year with it being such a difficult tomato year the flavor also wasn't great on them so I don't know if that was the cultivars that I was growing or if it was the season so it's um I'm getting some new ones and then trying the ones I tried this year again to to be able to make a comparison um and then also uh really expanding on my medicinal herb um collection I have I have quite a big collection already and the more and more I get into it the more interested I am just to try some new things so I've got I'm, I've got loads of herbs that I've got I've bought them they arrived in the post 2 days ago um and I'm going to start propagating from them and and growing more and more medicinal herbs and trying different ways of actually using them because I've I've always grown them and I've always had an interest in particularly um old fashioned medicinal you know like normal herbs rosemary is great and kind of heals everything even things like garlic is great as a herb as a medicinal herb for coughs and things like that but um all the kind of it's, it's quite overwhelming and intimidating actually using herbs it feels sometimes like this forgotten knowledge and I've been going to a herb course and learning more about it and speaking to lots of people I have a really good friend um who's been teaching me lots of stuff that she knows as well so I'm I'm trying to actually like really get to grips with herbs so that's my big plan for next year is herbs I'm going to ask you a really yeah. cruel question if you could only grow three herbs <laughs> which would they be well at the moment my main herb growing is for eating because yeah, why not? So my favourite herb to grow is tarragon, particularly the Russian tarragon. I love its flavour and it's really hard to get hold of. Tarragon is something, it's one of my favourite tasting herbs, but also it's really hard to buy in the supermarket. You can buy basil and coriander and parsley all year round, but never tarragon. And I love using it in cooking, so tarragon for sure. Um, and then I think rosemary um because it's so beautiful it's so good for the bees it's really a statuesque and lovely shrub so even in an ornamental garden I would put a rosemary and then there's also that lovely sort of 
the history of it that you know it brings good luck it keeps away evil you have to plant it by your front gate um which i think is probably just because as you brush past it it smells amazing but you know still let's go with the nice romantic old stories um and then the third one would be oh now it's hard because i only have one more to pick um i love time but I think actually, instead of thyme, I would grow winter savory because it's a very similar flavour to thyme, but it's a much easier plant to grow. I find that thyme often has a really short life or you'll plant it and it'll grow for a few months and then begin to sort of die off in patches. It's it's quite challenging. Um, so winter savory is much easier and it has that same really kind of ultimately savory flavour, really similar to thyme. So they're all cooking herbs, although apart from rosemary is incredibly medicinal. Um, but they're all cooking herbs because that's what I know and love. <laughs> well, they add so much flavour, don't they? Mm. And as you say, there is so much there if you're interested to learn about the medicinal stuff. Yeah. But just the flavour. I don't think anything has flavour like herbs do. And rosemary is so good, isn't it? You don't sort of think, oh gosh, I hope my rosemary's alive. Yeah, it's alive. Yeah, completely. It's, it's so easy. Um, and I've taken to doing a really odd thing, actually, but it's so good, is that when I take my bottle of water to work, I'll cut off some rosemary and stick it in the water. And over the course of the day in the cold water, it just really gives a lovely flavour. So it's, I, I, I just, there's something about fresh herbs. You, you just can't get it in a little jar if you grow them yourself. And they are sometimes some of the easiest plants to grow. I mean, if you have a sunny spot, they require basically no watering, no care. You can just let them do what they want. They're amazing for wildlife, pretty much all of them. You know, you think about hyssop and lovage and chives and lavender and thyme and um, chamomile. And, you know, there's so many herbs that have amazing flowers that are fantastic for pollinators. And they're amazing as a flavour in our food and they have medicinal uses. You can use them as tea. You know, there's so much you can do with those plants that, you know, I was saying earlier on about anything useful I love. And herbs for me are the ultimate useful plant because you can use them for everything. (laughs) They're hardworking, like a good date. Not just pretty, but... Exactly. They have substance. (laughs) That's what we look for in our plants. Exactly. (laughs) What are the steps we can take to make a veg patch or an allotment more sustainable? What are some of the easier bits and things we can try? Well, I think the thing that everyone's getting into now is not digging. That's a really important thing that we can all do. And like the perennial veg, it saves us work. I mean, gone are the days of having to double dig every single year. And that, when we were talking about feeling overwhelmed by your allotment, that is surely going to make anyone overwhelmed. So not digging is great because it keeps that soil microbiome really healthy. So all the mycorrhiza, all the bacteria, even the worms, and all those things that live in the ground, even sometimes bees, you know, lots of bees um, hibernate underground in the winter. So not disturbing that soil is really good for sustainability. Also, the soil is a really good carbon capture. So if we dig it, then that can release CO2 into the atmosphere. So that is the first thing that we can all do and the easiest thing that we can all do. Um, But then things like not bringing in lots of peat, um, getting your compost from a sort of local place so you're not having loads of air miles on big ton bags of compost. Um, I think that's a thing that's overlooked a lot in gardening generally, actually, is materials. Where have they come from? You know, not just 
ordering online and going, yep, great, thanks, cheap, lovely, you know, actually looking into where they've come from. Because if we're you know, buying in huge amounts of stone and often it comes from places like India, that's a huge amount of carbon that's being released just to get it to you. And yes, you'll pay a little more for local stone, but you know that it's been sustainably sourced and it hasn't got a huge footprint on it before it even gets into your garden. Um, not using concrete is another thing as well. Um, I, I've been working with a girl this year who she works for kind of rural crafts and stuff. And we were doing a lot of restructuring and building retaining walls and stuff with posts and concrete in the bottom of the holes. And she was saying, why, why are we using concrete? And I was going, well, because it holds the wall up. And she said, but why don't you just use lime and some rubble and then compact it? And that would do the same thing. And it was like, oh, wow, yeah, I never even thought about that. You just automatically do these things. And actually, not using concrete has a huge impact. You know, if you can just hammer something into the ground or put some hardcore around it to keep it in place, then that's so much better um, long-term. Um, but, you know, mulching, keeping the moisture in the ground saves you watering, saves your water bill, saves using excess water, especially in drought, you know. Um, it also makes your plants more resilient because we have really unpredictable weather and there have been huge periods of drought that, you know, I've had to deal with vegetable growing and hosepipe bands and it's really hard. So if you're mulching and keeping the soil moist underneath, that saves you having to worry about your veg so much so yeah that's just a few ways but there are there are loads of different things people can do to be a bit more sustainable that's really helpful and i always think mulching after it's rained exactly keep that moisture also in. keep the rain <laughs> don't let that rain escape things like um if you get an um, an umbrella um and you turn it upside down and put a little pipe underneath it above something then you're capturing loads more water in your water butt than just letting the rain fall in it or you know obviously have water butts underneath every gutter really collect all the falling rain um even get something like a little well or a borehole if you can um or dig some ditches and channels so that when the rain falls it's being channeled into somewhere where you can store it that is really helpful um just you know rain rain is wasted if it just falls on grass <laughs> and i've got to ask you about pest and disease i ask every gardener any top tips for dealing organically with pest and disease problems on a vegetable patch or an allotment plot yeah i mean that, that it is undeniably a problem especially when you're being organic and especially when you are allowing weeds and things because you have inevitably the insects that come with those plants not all of them will be good. Um, there's also a massive increase in slugs if you do things like no digging and you're bringing in mulch and you're not disturbing the eggs. And often if you're growing ground cover as well, then you have a lot of problems with that. Um, for me, I have found annual veg is, is much more susceptible. So again, the perennials seem to be really a lot more resilient. Um, fencing, it's just a really basic thing, but it keeps out rabbits and pigeons, which can be a problem. And oddly, pigeons, although they fly, they tend to walk around when they're eating your plants. So having just a little chicken wire fence around anywhere that's a bit delicate will actually keep a lot of pigeons out. Um, that's something just really basic. But having that sort of complete system with a habitat that's hospitable for everything gives you a balance you shouldn't have too much of any one thing 
putting in a pond is really helpful because you have frogs and newts which will eat slugs <laughs> um but I, I think if you're a vegetable grower rabbits slugs pigeons are your real nemesis things like mildew will just come every year pretty much there will come a point when your courgettes and your squashes just just will get mildew on them and you have to be quite accepting of that um but i have found that trying to be accepting of all the pests is really helpful um things like blight with your tomatoes if you grow them in a greenhouse then you won't get affected by blight potatoes don't grow very well in a greenhouse but you can keep them in um some tires that you can add to or in a potato grow bag that you can keep out of the wind stuff like that so it's just sort of good plant health good airflow good hygiene um and maintaining that full ecosystem with a rich diverse species <laughs> range that will hopefully keep itself in check if not uh, you can buy things like um, lacewing larvae and ladybird larvae, um, which you can release into your veg patch. And that will just keep things like white fly and green fly and black fly a little bit at bay. Um, Have you found success with that? I suppose my worry sometimes with biocontrol is it will it will fly off. Yeah, well, it will. <laughs> I mean, it, it will if you don't have okay. enough black fly <laughs> at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think... Yeah, I, I had this lovely neighbour on my plot last year. He used to always buy loads of them and then he'd release them on his and then if there were any little stragglers, he'd put all the little cans on my plot so that I'd get all the extras. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't actually bought them myself. I mainly got them from him. I think I, I it doesn't sit well with me killing anything. When I was an apprentice, I used to have to um, chop slugs in half with secateurs and I remember doing it once and the slug didn't die quickly and I just I mean this was 15 years ago and I haven't killed a slug since then I just it just doesn't sit well even the idea of a nematode which will eat it from the inside out I know it's a natural control but I can't quite bear it just so that I can have a, a cabbage with no holes in you know it, it feels really brutal so I don't personally buy lacewing larvae, ladybird larvae. I just hope to provide them with a habitat that they'll naturally come into. And things like parasitoid wasps, which are so small, we don't even see them and they do a lot. And we have, I think in the UK alone, 7,000 plus species of wasp. Um, so, you know, you're not really, you don't need to buy all these things in. Uh, but if you do have a real outbreak or if you have a greenhouse or something like that where you have a you have a massive white fly or green fly then you can release something like that into that environment where it's not really a natural outdoor environment anyway and they'll have a kind of captive dinner <laughs> i was gonna say captive audience <laughs> not really <laughs> of sorts yeah of sorts. Captive, very unhappy audience i was going to ask you what your answer to that is but i think you said it biodiversity so growing a range of things that are going to invite yeah. natural predators is sort of your way of live and let live. Yeah, it, it, it's a philosophy, really. And it is really hard as a gardener. I get that struggle when I've planted loads of cabbages and turn up the next day and they're gone. You know, it's it's hard, especially when you've grown them from seed and you've pricked them all out and you've potted them all on and they were really good specimens. It's really, really annoying. But that's how it works. And even if I went round and I killed every slug that I found, 
there would be more to come. Um, and, you know, the compost that everyone has on the allotment I'm on now is just this big line where people dump all their stuff. And it's not far from my plot. So they'll all be living in there and they'll all come out at night. You know, we can try and kill whatever we see, but there'll still be more. And in a way, you know, what right have we to actually just kill something, end its life just because it's eaten one thing? So it's a struggle. It's really hard. It's But you have to we don't have to. You can. You can go out and, and and put down things. I would never use slug pellets because they have such a huge knock-on effect in the kind of habitat, you know, in the food chain, really. You have all the birds that eat the slugs will then eat the pellets. The cats that catch the birds will eat the pellets. The dogs that catch the cats. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the lizard exactly. lady who lived in the shoe. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wouldn't, use, I wouldn't use a poison. I never would use a poison. But, you know, if you have something like a nematode that specifically targets a slug, that's that's up to you. You can do that because it is really heartbreaking when you lose plants. Um, but I have learned to just try and have a little tear and then move on. It's interesting because I remember being taught to cut slugs in half a long, long, long time ago mm. and leave them. I think the idea was the birds will then come and then they'll come again and yeah. get more. But if it's inviting, the birds should come anyway. Yeah. You shouldn't need to... Massacre I mean, your there way are other around. ways of getting birds in. If you, if you and and other predators, like I said, if you have a pond, then you have a whole rich range of of well, a new habitat for different insect species and newts and amphibians that will eat slugs too. Um, you grow, you know, on my allotment, I have lots of flower species for kind of in theory a cut flower bed, but but I don't tend to cut them actually. They're just really good as companions that bring in pollinators, that bring in birds, seed heads that you can leave on for the winter, roses that produce hips, um, even fruits, raspberries and stuff the birds can eat because I can't eat them all. They just keep producing. Um, so it's a, it's a shared environment. It's not just for me. And that's, I think, how gardening will progress. I think we have learned almost to garden in this really sterile way where it just has to look good so that we can enjoy it where actually gardens are really vital habitats and if you really want to embrace that idea then you just have to allow some things to get eaten as much as that is heartbreaking (laughs) so we've been good and we've been ethical but um any tips for maximizing our produce we're kind of accepting we're going to be feeding other life forms as well but do you have any tips for maximising produce? Yeah, my my biggest tip is pot them on. If you you know if you're growing annual veg, especially that is the biggest thing that I have learned is is you know don't rely on just planting things in the soil. Um, I think that is very unreliable. Things often get outcompeted by seed weeds rather than growing really strongly. Um, unless they've self seeded for some reason, things that are self seeded tend to grow really well. Um, but yeah, you sow your seeds at the right time. Don't start too early. I always do this thing where I panic in kind of February. We'll have a nice day and I'll think, oh no, it's spring. I need to sow everything. And I sow everything. <laughs> um, and then it's too cold and you have poor germination rates. Wait until April, I would say, is a safe time to to sow. It's not too late. Start sowing then. Pop things on. Prick them out as soon as they're big enough second second set of leaves showing prick them out into separate little cells as soon as they're big enough in there where the roots are showing at the bottom of the cell 
pop them up into a little pot, pop them up again if you need to. I have found that's the biggest success. If you plant out strong plants, they'll stay strong. If you plant out tiny little weedy plants, chances are that they won't survive. And then, and this is the thing I'm still learning, because like I said, my my experience and my training is in ornamental gardening and botany. So the veg stuff is my love, but I'm still, I still feel like I'm learning so much about it. The thing that I still need to remind myself is not just to do it once. I tend to go, great, I've sown all my seeds. That's great. And then I get really good and I prick them all out and I find the time to pop them all on and I get this little production line going and completely forget that I need to sow again in order to have a harvest later in the year. So it's that keeping sowing all through the summer. Even into the early autumn, you can still be sowing quick things like radishes and coriander. Just keep going. Um, Don't just do a one-sow fits all, you know, um, keep it going otherwise you end up with a big hole in the plot and that feels like a real shame what veg would you recommend for beginners to get growing on their plot this year or next i think well i suppose the cop-out answer is what you like because i don't think people get into gardening if they grow something like i'd say radishes radishes are so easy but loads of people hate them so don't you know if you hate radishes don't grow them even though they'll germinate and that'll be great you know, there's no point growing them. So grow something that you really like. Um, I think it's a really good thing to grow things that are for indoors, because a lot of people can get into gardening before they even have a garden. And like I said, many of us don't have a garden. And I, this year, have been as productive indoors as I have on the allotment, especially with annual vegetables. So I've got things like chilies and tomatoes and aubergines all growing inside on the windowsills and they've grown really really well just in decent sized pots also ginger and lemongrass and some more exotic um you know tender plants that wouldn't be very happy outside so if you have no plot then start with something like that in fact lemongrass is a great one because it's so easy you just buy it in the supermarket use what you want to use but just keep that basal section where the roots would be um stick that in a glass of water leave it for a couple of weeks and it will have roots forming on it. And then you stick it in a pot, put a few together. That's sometimes quite a nice way. And then within a few months, you have a nice clump of grass and it starts to regrow and it's a perennial. So I keep it indoors and you always have lemongrass to harvest. I started with maybe three or four little basil cuttings. um, And now I've got three or four big pots full of quite thick clumps of lemongrass. So that's a nice one. It's easy. Do you use that in food or drink? How do you make the most of your lemongrass harvest? In food. I love cooking Asian food. So yeah, in a a Thai curry or something like that, lemongrass is great. Oh, lovely. What's the best thing you get out of having a space to grow useful plants in? It's hard just to pick one thing that I get out of it because I get so much out of it. You know, depending what day it is, sometimes I might get something I can, you know cook with sometimes I might get something I can make a medicine or a cup of tea with um sometimes I might pick something I can infuse in some oil and then make a lip balm with um and sometimes I just get to go and be outside and just do something that I feel is useful you know even if it's just for me even if you know me growing this plant just means I save buying one tube of lip balm it feels like I'm contributing something and being outside in a space and just having time just to stop 
even though you're not stopping, you know, you're being busy, you're, you're on the ground and digging and weeding and, you know, that, that you're doing something active, but you're switching off that part of your brain that I think we all, especially in the last year or two, have really put into overdrive, which is staring at screens and, you know, sitting indoors and not being in the fresh air. And I'm really lucky that my job is being outside, but I have spent so many years being a gardener for other people that having an allotment and having an outdoor space of my own is such a luxury to be able to try out ideas that I've been mulling over for years and desperately trying to persuade my clients to try. (laughs) Um, And I have now the chance to just go and be in a space that feels like it's for me. It sounds really selfish, doesn't it? You know, it's not just you know, giving back to nature. Gardening isn't really giving back to nature. What would be giving back to nature would be just to let it go wild again. But actually, it's a space for me to be. And if I want to listen to music, I can. If I want to just be in silence, I can. And I can get all kinds of benefits from it. I don't know, it just feels like a a really rewarding privilege really because so many people are on waiting lists I know this not everyone has an allotment plot and I could be for many years you know who knows if I'll ever be able to buy my own house with a garden you know it could be years and years that I'm just doing it for other people but to have that privilege of a space that's all mine (laughs) even if it's only until I move and someone else can take it on it just feels so wonderful thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.